I took uh, American Sign Language last year at City College. Um, I remember when I, there's a there's I think it's the largest queer deaf community in the United States here in San Francisco, and so I kept meeting these really hot deaf guys, and I was like, how can I how can I make this work for me? That was language instructor Dino Medardo Rosso. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Every week on this podcast, you'll hear from teachers, artists, doctors, and other San Franciscans telling stories, sharing personal histories, and trying to get to the heart of what makes this city so special. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 19, Part 2. In Part 1, Dino talked about moving to San Francisco, giving bicycle tours, and getting a job teaching at a high school. In this podcast, he picks up the story of Lingo, his language instruction side gig. After helping restaurant workers be able to better communicate with one another, Dino realized he was onto something. Here's Dino. Yeah, so then after the restaurants, I kept thinking, you know, what else can I do? I mean, I'm working seven days a week, 10 to 12 hour days, and I'm like, this isn't enough. Maybe I should have a baby, I don't know. <laughs> I need something to do. So, um, I thought, I was actually going to go, last summer I, I, I went up to Guerneville and slept by the river um, for a week, and it was really glorious, um, and I, uh, I grabbed a pamphlet about the wineries, and I was like, who else is out in the fields? It ain't white people, because <laughs> they're very delicate. Uh, yeah, so, it, I mean, if you're talking about people picking grapes, and it's, it's brown people. Um, and so my goal, I was going to originally approach some wineries and be like, oh, I'll get a bike and ride my fat ass around from winery to winery and just drink a little bit and teach a little bit and have a good summer. It'd be great. And then the flood happened uh, a couple weeks, a couple weeks ago. So, you know, that kind of, I was like, that that's, doesn't look like it's going to pan out. But so, uh, I've been thinking of other, other organizations with whom I can partner in one that's been, uh, in the, in the works for a year and a half is the fire department. So for the last three months, I've been teaching the public information officer, Jonathan Baxter, who's a very visible figure. He likes being named. He likes being... Every time we have a lesson together, he wears his dress blues because he wants the community to see that, um, you know, these official entities that serve the community, including the, the Latin community, um, is making intentional steps to connect with them in a meaningful way. So, um, uh, w- the whole police, the whole fire department is uh, interested. The challenge is I'm not a government uh, vendor, nor do I want to be, because the less that the government knows about me, the better. <laughs> if, wink, wink. I ain't trying to be on anyone's radar in that sense, you know. Um, but so, uh, so I can't meet at the firehouse, is my point. But so, um, I was talking to Jonathan Baxter um, of the SFFD uh, a few weeks ago about, you know, how can I get the, the police department involved in this? Because, you know, they really could use these services. Um, and he said, well, you know, we, the fire department and the police department really have uh, a longstanding friendly rivalry. He's like, as soon as... Beyond the, softball? Yeah, beyond softball. He's like, if you want the police to do anything... Firefighters do it first, and then they're like, "We want to play." Yeah, right. <laughs> it's almost like the uh, the armed services, like yeah, the exactly. cool branch, uh-huh, mm-hmm. and then the uptight guys. Yeah, like, oh, we'll yeah. Change. Like we weren't gonna do it before, but now that they're doing it, we yeah. kind of need it. But so I want to create a bridge program between them because it'll also be a way to again build bridges between 
two organizations that don't necessarily have a lot of connection between them mm-hmm. and should have more because, you know, when you call 911, it's the firefighters that show up. Mm-hmm. And I was having this discussion with uh, Jonathan about, you know, imagine you're, maybe you're undocumented, maybe you're not, maybe you're a person of color. Um, I freak out when I see uniforms sometimes. I think sometimes they can be jarring. So imagine you're in a situation, you see lights, flashing lights, and sirens, and a, someone, some dude in a uniform come to your car. You're, the, situa- the situation has the, the possibility to escalate. Um, and so I want to be able to teach them language that softens, you know, I'm, you know, I'm here to help. That's all I'm here for. Whatever you need, I'm going to help you with that. So the principal of my school at Waldorf um, uh, said to me last week, hey, you know what? I know I follow you on Facebook all the time. I see what you're doing. I know what you're doing. Um, you know, I was, I was on SF Weekly cover mm-hmm. last year. Um, so it's very kind of like out in the open. Um, he said, I, I want to offer you the school as a place to, yeah, because it's politically neutral, right? Right. So I was like, that's amazing. You know, if you if you put it out into the universe... It'll it'll give you back what you need, and he, I didn't ask. He just said it, you know. And uh, his name is Mitch Mitchell. He's really cool. Um, he said, "I think this would be a really great opportunity for everyone involved, for Waldorf, police department, fire department. I think it's a win, 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 win." So that's something that's coming down, you know, the line. Um, I approached Byright a few months ago, um, uh, but I'm kind of in the final stages of uh, wrapping that up. Um, I have about uh, ten people. Op, uh, I would say buy right probably operates similarly to a restaurant. Yeah, everyone in their in their meat department, whatever in the back, they're all Spanish speakers. Right, um, and they, you know, the people who are delivering Produce. their food, shipping their food, growing their food, they're all Spanish speakers. So, yes, you not know, white. and I I want to make it clear, like I'm not shitting on white people. I'm white. I, I'm allowed to if I wanted to. <laughs> but you know, I just think uh, I when we talk about things like white privilege, it's not just acknowledging that white privilege exists. It's working actively to acknowledge that there are different systems. I didn't, you know, a few years ago, it was either Mississippi or Alabama, one of the fun states, that um, they put up all these, they did a a multi-pronged program of uh, awfulness where they first put up all these billboards saying, ICE is ramping up their actions in your neighborhood. Basically, it was a a campaign of, of fear. So people stayed home. They kept their kids home. They they shut their shut their you know windows doors, and it kept people out of the fields. Um, so their next step was they they basically put out more billboards saying, "Hey, white people, you remember those jobs you were talking about them taking? <laughs> well, they're open, so come come on down. And you can guess what happened? Like five assholes showed up, uh, four of whom." left in an hour because <laughs> it's hard work it's I mean, actual work it's fucking hard backbreaking <laughs> it's, it's it's you know it's minimum wage it's really fucking hot it's, you're bent over you know and when we think about uh migrant workers we they're called migrant workers not because they migrated it's because they're constantly going where the crops are they don't have a stable housing situation they're living in a shed with 100 other people it's an unstable situation. Your ki- if you have kids, if you're a migrant worker, they're not going to school. Or they're in 30... 30- Cesar Chavez was in 37 different schools. And so if you're a kid, he sa- he you know he would tell stories about... Uh, yep, we would, us kids would sleep in the fields. 
you know, because we were young and we couldn't be unattended. And then we would start picking and then you just end up picking and now you're 80 years old and you're still picking. And, you know, I think uh, I hear this so often and I'm very vocal about this. Um, I, it, I, you can't be apolitical doing what I do because it's it's a political thing. Um, I hear a lot of cranky white people uh, on the one hand complaining about illegal immigration. Um, and they took our jobs and whatever. Um, they have no idea where their food comes from. If you ask any white per- person where their food comes from, I mean, they know that it's grown, obviously, and they know it comes from farms. But the reality is, they just there's just this disconnect where white people don't know where it comes from. And if you don't know where it comes from and you don't have an appreciation for it, then you can't have empathy. And if you don't have empathy, then you're not going to treat other human beings with dignity and respect. And every time I hear these immigration debates, absent immigrant voices, I'm like, are there any Native Americans on your immigration debate panel? <laughs> because guess what, Whitey? You're the original illegal. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Um... You know, so uh, I just, I feel like, you know, and they're the hardest fucking working people I've ever met in my life. Of course. You know, if a white person has to work overtime, they're bitching about it, and which is fine. You can bitch about it. But you, you, you're, you're an immigrant, and maybe you're undocumented, maybe you're not, um, but you're still probably working two to three jobs. Um, and while you're doing those things, you're being looked down upon. You know, you have people openly saying, go back to your country. You're not wanted here. You're worthless. And, you know, just imagine what kind of life that is mm-hmm. of working your ass off all the time uh, to perform an essential task that provides billions to the economy mm-hmm. and people are just shitholes <laughs> in your direction. And I, I've thought a lot about, well, you know, what, it, what is a solution? Because I don't want to be just uh, a complainer pants. You know, I want to be a, sol- I must, I wanna be a solutionizer. Um, and I, I think uh, it's, it's tricky uh, because if you... Say you made it easy for uh, undocumented immigrants to access citizenship. What happens now? You have to pay them a fair wage. And if you pay them a fair wage, that parlays itself into $120 avocado toast. (laughs) You know, so people are already bitching about $7 avocado toast. You're like, yep, well, guess what? Now they're $20 each. And that's it's just that's just facts. That's I'm not an economist, but I'm pretty sure that those costs have to be offset because we live in a capitalist society. The farmers want to make money, and they should. They they you know, it's their business. But if you're going to pay your workers a fair wage, and they should, um, then the American consumer has to just you know put up or shut up. Frankly, you know we had a we had something called the Bracero program here. Um, it it was. Something that the U.S. government did to address the lack of workforce during World War II. So we brought in a bunch of Mexicans. We were like, "Go at it, have fun." And they, did, you know, they worked and they, some of them created families here, you know, made lives for themselves. And then the government was like, "All right, jerks, get out," you know. And it, I have, you know, I have a lot to say about this. <laughs> <laughs> It's just I think I feel like you know I and I teach Latin American studies too, so I'm very well aware. I have a bro- I have an adopted brother from El Salvador. Um, you know I was at a party last night with someone from El Salvador, who started crying, telling me that when he was a kid, he would see you know headless bodies on the side of the road going to school, and when he came here, he was like, "Where's all the dead bodies?" And you have to acknowledge that the United States in the 70s and 80s, Iran Contra, all that shit. Um, 
it rests squarely on the shoulders of the United States government because we were routinely providing arms to people that were uh, so-called anti-communist. Mm-hmm. We were Contras so we were yeah we were uh, so afraid of um, you know the the spread of red mm-hmm. that I just made that up by the way that we <laughs> you're welcome uh, that we were like yeah oh you're a democratically elected leader not on my watch. And so you, that's the formation of, you know, all these killing squads. The guy last night was telling me when he was 12, uh, the military came to his school and every other boy was picked out of a line to go to the, join the military. Yeah. You know, um, and you look at any Latin American, Central American country. I mean, they, the CIA assassinated Sorry. Che Guevara yeah. in, in, in Bolivia. You know, this is not a secret. The, the American government has been openly uh, helping destroy democratic socialist countries in the making so on a lighter note i'm trying to help <laughs> solve the problem in the smallest way that i can by partnering with organizations that that have workers that that you know that speak spanish probably only the hotel industry also filipinos uh, there's a lot of uh, tagalog speakers i was excited a few weeks ago when muni um they finally um you know, they have the, the, the announcements. announcements in, in Chinese, Spanish, English. I've heard Tagalog. Now it's in Tagalog. Oh, yeah, I've heard it. Yeah. Because it always sounds like my friend's grandma. Yeah. Like yeah. She, like they recorded her over, like, the... Anyway, like, at the party. It's recognizable, yeah. It's like a shitty Walkman recording. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like, who did you get to do that on your... It's on your, really low quality. On your Sony. But I'm like, it's nice to hear. But it's nice to hear. And I was on the train, I was like, yay. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I'd, you know, if there's any Tagalog speakers or, you know... People listening that want to help and our teachers or whatever, you know, avail yourselves of me. I would love to explore that. I've studied 16 languages. I don't speak them all fluently. Some of them I don't really even speak at all. But I think when you study a language intentionally for a year, it gives you an insight into the people who speak it. And that's what, when you're learning a language, you're not just learning words. Words are connected to the people that speak them. And so you have to really... Uh, understand their traditions and cultures and you know so i've been studying arabic for 20 years my tattoo is in arabic this this is my name in arabic abu risha it was given to me by the guys um at Le- from lebanon at my corner store <laughs> you know they have my sf weekly cover posted next to the cash register and it's like they're my family i've been you know they know all the they know the amount of wine that i buy <laughs> so you know we're tight um but so uh i've st- so when I say that I that I study the language, it doesn't mean that I speak it. Um, it just means that I know it on some level. Having said that, you know I would feel comfortable having a conversation in Romanian, Arabic. Um, I can read Catalan. I don't speak it because I have language in Barcelona. Uh, I speak Portuguese, both continental and Brazilian. Um, I teach Mexican Spanish as well as Argentinian Spanish and Spain Spanish. They're you know three different types. But I teach French. French. Yeah. Ger- German? Um, I, I, work, I studied it in college. Um, and I work at a Waldorf school, which is it's a Gurofsteiner school. <laughs> a lot of the parents are German. Um, the kids speak German. They, t- they gossip in German. Um, I don't speak German. I know what it sounds like and looks like, and I know the grammatical structure. And if I were forced to, I could teach basic German because I, you know. Um, but I wouldn't consider myself a German speaker. Yeah, I'm learning Aztec now. It's it's okay. called it's called Nahuatl. Um, it's the biggest uh, Native American language. 
in the hemisphere. Meaning uh, most speakers. Meaning the most speakers. Right. Yeah. So I, it's interesting because I've <laughs> I've mentioned this to people before. Like, hey, um, I'm learning uh, Aztec, and they're like, aren't they dead? <laughs> I'm like, nope. They tried. We tried our hardest, but they, you know. <laughs> so, um, and the reason why I'm learning Nahuatl is because I had this experience where I was doing a, a conflict mediation in a restaurant between the people in the back and the people in the front. Um, here in San Francisco. It was here in San Francisco. I'm not going to name the name, but. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, so, and this is, they're, the, the sort of conflicts they have usually are cultural on some level. They're not necessarily language. Um, but so I sat down and I had, you know, my, 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 my brown ones on this side and my white ones on this side, you know. And I started talking to the kitchen guys. I was like, you know, so tell me what's up. What's the problem? And they were like, oh, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, uh. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and they were like, blah, 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 blah. I was like, oh, shit. I don't speak that. <laughs> and so I turned to the, to, to the white people and I was like, I don't know what they're saying. And they were like, well, what do we hire you for? I was like, you didn't know that they spoke Mayan. So what are you yelling at me for? <laughs> I was like, do you even know where they're from? Um, but so, yeah, it's fascinating. So a lot of kitchen speakers, kitchen workers only speak either Mayan or Aztec, Nahuatl. And the reason why is because when Europeans came to Central America, a lot of the natives had the common sense <laughs> to GTFO, right? Because uh, I don't know if you knew this, but in um, in Aztec legend, they had a legend that a a, a blonde, white-skinned, metal-clad, horse-mounted person was going to show up in the 1500s, and sure enough, he did. And so they were like, "Yeah, I know what this is." So they were like, "They they got the fuck out." And they went to the mountains and the jungles, and they hid, and they've been there for 500 years. So they never learned Spanish. And so when they're coming down off the mountain or whatever, looking for work, uh, they instead of going to Mexico City, uh, they'll come to, you know, name, name anywhere in California, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, because they have a cousin there or something. Um, and so the situation is that so because they're all cousins from the same village, typically, in a restaurant, um, especially the smaller ones, they, they don't need to learn Spanish. So they're like a microcosm of a microcosm. So when we think of like the Spanish English English language divide, um, it gets even you know within that you have you know in their household they're just speaking Mayan all day. <laughs> they don't. It's like they bypassed. Spanish. Yeah, they did totally. And then have a. I mean, they're 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 Native American. There's nothing Latino about them. Um, uh, you wouldn't refer to them as Latino because they're not ethnically or linguistically. Um, and so yeah, they're not watching Telemundo. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing because I have never followed one home. Um, I would be honored to be able to have a glimpse into that life. But it's very, you know, it's, I think as a white person, uh, even though I have access to pretty much anything, there are still some things that I will never have access to and that's okay. Um, but I always wonder, like, what would it be like to be uh, like a fly on the wall of a Mayan household in San Francisco? You know, um, it's a privilege that I will n- well that I don't think I'll ever have, and that's okay. I have enough privilege. Do you want to continue to acquire new languages? Yeah, I took uh, American okay. Sign Language last year at City College. Awesome. Um, I remember when I, there's a there's I think it's the largest queer deaf community in the United States here in San Francisco, and so I kept meeting these really hot deaf guys, 
and I was like, how can I, how can I make this work for me? You don't actually <laughs> have to listen to me, bitch. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was like, I will find a way to get in your pants. Huh. Just you wait. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I started learning it, and then I realized uh, there's so many different kinds of sign language. The, you know, there's British sign language, American, Nigerian. Australian, so, you know, Japanese. British sign language is lots of the U, mm-hmm. letter U. <laughs> With your pinky up. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think, and, and this, is a, this is a question that I do get asked a lot is, you know, do you continue to work on your craft while your students are working on their craft? Um, and I say yes, and for, for several reasons, not the least of which, I think it's important to understand what your students are going through. Sometimes we forget. Remember how high school language class was hard as shit? You know, I don't ever want to forget what it's like for people. People always tell me, oh, you must be so easier for you. I mean, it's a lot easier for me than most, I'm sure. Um, but it's still hard. You have to, you have to, you know, you have to grasp new concepts. You have to learn a lot of words. You have to spend, you have to spend time every day dedicated. I've, when I sit down and watch TV... You know, at the end of the night when I get home at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night, um, I have a stack of books next to my couch so that during the commercials, I can just five minutes with French, five minutes with Portuguese, five minutes with Arabic, five minutes with Nahuatl, you know? Hi. So um, I, I, one of the reasons why I continue to do language study is because I want to empathize with their uh, process. But also, I just like learning languages. There's 6,000 plus languages in the world, so it's not like I'm going to like run out like oh, sorry did them all now what I guess I'll have to learn how to you know write a boat or whatever so um, and it you know it opens up the world to you and it sounds really trite you know and hippy dippy like kumbaya but it does you know I you learn literally language. it really does you just you know when I sit on the bus sometimes I'm like ah oh, the voice is in my head because I understand everyone having a conversation <laughs> you know that's a problem it can be because sometimes I'm like make the voices stop that was Dino Medardo Rosso. Join us next week when we'll close out our Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence at 40 series with Sister Annie Cockledew. Music for the podcast is by Otis McDonald. Film photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on everything we do. Find the nearly 70 episodes on our website, storiedsf.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If that happens to be Apple Podcasts and you have a minute to spare, please rate and review the show for us. Send comments or suggestions to storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>